Welcome to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast, where our team is helping people build their financial freedom. And one of the things we talk a lot about is saving and investing 25% of one's income. And I'm your host, Joel Farrell. And each week we dig into the ways that people are generating more income to be able to save more money and the ways that they are investing that hard-earned dollar. And lastly, the how, how people are making these changes. Because again, we're talking about changes. We're talking about changing behaviors. Let's get into today's content so we can help you on your financial journey towards living a life with the power of choice. Welcome back to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast. And I've got an amazing guest on today from Air DNA, one of the top uh, economists, uh, Bram Gallagher. Thank you so much for joining our show today. Thanks for having me on, Joel. So if you could give our listeners a little bit of a background on uh, who you are and what you do. Sure, yeah. I'm an economist for uh, Air DNA. So uh, the path I took to get here, uh, it started with an academic career. So I was actually a professor of economics for some years up at Middle Tennessee State University. Um, you know, I decided that uh, besides, of course, the academic market being as screwy as it is, I decided also that if you really want to learn about economics, you know, you, you want to get involved in the real economy. So I started looking for positions in industry in, in, in Georgia. That's my uh, home state. And I love to be here as, as great as Tennessee was, uh, I guess, too far north for me. So we had to move back. And I, uh, I, I got connected with PKF Hospitality Research, uh, which was uh a, a small outfit that was being bought by a much larger outfit at the time, CBRE, very big uh, commercial real estate firm. But what they wanted from us was our expertise in, in hotels. And we had collected enormous amounts of, of uh, profit and loss statement data. Uh, and it was my job to sort of look at this data in conjunction with data that we got from Smith Travel Research about hotel performance and come up with performance forecasts for U.S. hotels in, in 50 different markets across the, the U.S. So that was a uh, incredibly fun job. Uh, and I love uh, the hospitality industry. I love the hoteliers. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a fun uh, industry to be in. My boss for the longest time was Jamie Lane, and he had been interested in the short-term rental space for a long period of time. You know, he, he was on, I think, some kind of couch surfing website before there even was an Airbnb. So he was very interested in the space. One of the first, one of the first people to go out there and actually start talking to the hotel industry and, and telling them that this is a, uh, this is going to be a permanent fixture in the hospitality space and we need to start paying attention to it. Um, so he eventually got offered a, a position at uh, AirDNA as the VP of research. And he's now the chief economist uh, as well. Uh, here at AirDNA, but uh, he's really interested in this space, and he he went, uh, and about a year afterwards, he needed an economist, so uh, he, I, I contacted him, and uh, it, it's been great fun working for him since. So that's how I got here. I've been working here since September. Uh, it's been a little bit of adjustment moving from hotels to short-term rentals, but you know, AirDNA has got incredible amounts of data, and as an economist, uh, you know, that's really been a, a lot of fun. Uh, looking at that, talking with uh, new people, talking with different kinds of of operators, and uh, coming up with new forecasts. So, just right there, there's a lot to be able to dig into. But just to kind of bring our listeners back into kind of uh, what to expect with the episode. So, you know, we talk about saving money, 
which starts with a lot of times increasing income. And then once you've got money saved, being able to have choices of how to invest and invest in assets to be able to then be able to uh, have another lane going to build uh, potential income from those right. assets. And so, you know, short-term rentals is a big hot button, hot, hot topic, something that I've personally, you know, in that game and so many others are, are getting in the game too. And I'm going to dig into some of the trends and some of the uh, expectations for markets and all kinds of stuff today. From an AirDNA standpoint, can you just give us a quick explanation on, on what AirDNA is and what it does? Sure. Yeah. They're, uh, they're a data generating organization. Yeah, and, and what I mean by that is they uh, scrape the web constantly looking at specifically Airbnb, VRBO listings. There's some other listings. Those are our main sources, though, the ones that we, you know, we, we use um, predominantly. They collect this globally uh, and, and continuously. And, and by observing that, they're actually able to look at the rates that are being charged when a property becomes unavailable on their calendar. And from this, too, they've also got uh, a very interesting algorithm that they co-developed with MIT that deduces using a, a variety of factors. I think it's 16 different factors that deduces the likelihood of it either being just taken off of the market or blocked versus actually reserved. So it's been a very good algorithm. Um, so from this, they're also able to, to get the occupancy rates. They're able to infer pacing, the rates that are, are, are being charged. And they, they package this up and they, the main customer, the main person who looks at our data is going to be a, a small uh, operator, someone that is managing between maybe one and 10 properties, short-term rentals, and wants to know, for instance, uh, you know, what should I charge? What are my competitors doing? Are my competitors already booked? And if they are and I'm not, why is that? So, you know, being able to provide sort of comparables and, and uh, you know, comparable properties and being able to look at, at performance and even suggest rates that we think are going to be able to generate occupancies that are, are optimal, not necessarily the highest occupancy, but the optimal occupancy. So that's that's an interesting idea that they, they're also looking at as well, right? You don't want to get 100% occupancy by <clears throat> leaving money on the table in the forms of, of too low of a rate. On the other hand, if you charge too high of a rate, uh, you might find yourself uh, with an empty property and that's not good either. So that's essentially what AirDNA, that's their sort of their main, their main business. Uh, we also talked to a couple enterprise folks as well. They're looking to get into this space, but one of the big differences between hotels and, and short-term rentals is that short-term rentals is still uh, dominated by, by small operators. You know, the, the unit of operation is much smaller. It's easier to get into a short-term rental. Uh, you're, you're just acquiring either, say, a condo or, or even renting an apartment and letting it on the short-term rental market as opposed to having to construct or buy a hotel, which, as you can imagine, is a much more daunting capital prospect. Coming from the background of, of hotels and and being in that business and the day to day planning and mapping out of operations and forecasting and you know bringing that back into this short term rental market and comparing the two different kind of uh, lanes, um, past history versus what to, what's going to happen going forward in these industries of lodging, what are your thoughts on on that? Just as things progress with these two different two different industries. Well, I would say the you know the main difference. Looking from a forecasting perspective, there's the same demand drivers. The same things are going to be making people want to take vacations or even business trips, uh, but the supply is radically different. So 
you know, if you want to forecast hotel supply, it's real easy. It just, you, you, you go to a construction site, it says we're going to be opening up this, you know, this Hyatt or this uh, Marriott uh, at this date. And then there you go. That's that's your supply forecast. We're going to increase supply by 140 rooms at this date. Um, but it's it's not the case with short-term rentals because we've got people coming in and out. The seasonality of the supply is much stronger. You know, people can much more readily uh, come into the market to, to, to capture um, event-based demand. So that that I think is the, the biggest difference between the two. And one of the, I guess, when we're looking at supply, and that's been a big issue for short-term rentals, especially this last couple of years, because you know it does intersect with, with residential housing. And you know, mortgage rates have been increasing quite a bit. Well, you know, they've been backing off as of late, but they are much, much higher than they were, say, a year ago. And that that has uh, some effects on the flexibility of supply. So just to kind of take the next question on that. So right now in 2023, you know, we've got higher rates than what we had in 2021 for sure. Uh, 22, we saw rates go up. Supply-wise, are we higher or lower supply versus, you know, last year or year before? Oh, definitely higher. Definitely higher. Okay. Yeah, if, if I may, I can paint sort of a, a a characterized picture of the U.S. market over the last couple of years. So pandemic hits, a lot of supply goes away. You know, people are not as comfortable having uh, folks over to their homes. Um, people are not traveling as much during the pandemic, uh, particularly in, in large cities. So we see a lot of this supply uh, go away. Afterwards, you know, we go to 2021. Huge pent up demand. People want to get out. You know, uh, people want to get to the beach, especially. But anywhere outside is great. Small towns, uh, you know, rural areas, those are good too. Uh, but people definitely want to get out. At the same time, a lot of the supply is left in short term rentals, and hotels too are also shut down. And a lot of them are finding it difficult to reopen as quickly as they would like. This leads to really incredible performance, the likes of which we haven't seen since, and probably won't ever see again in 2021 right so you know if i was to, to to look back in history you know what, what was the occupancy in 2021 uh, and we hit in july 77.6 percent occupancy which is essentially full you know that's with all the short-term rentals in the entire us and uh, short-term rental occupancy always runs a little bit lower than hotel occupancy because that supply is so flexible it's essentially unlimited if the price is right so, but that was incredible performance. We were seeing tons of, of money going into the space. ADRs also were very, very high as well. So big rush, lots of supply hitting the market early 2022 and mortgage rates still hadn't, hadn't gone up yet. Uh, interest rates had been cut to sort of stimulate the economy. Uh, housing was, was relatively affordable. We hadn't seen the, the enormous run up in prices. Well, we hadn't seen the entire enormous run up in prices at that point. Yep. So a lot of people jumped on it. We saw a big explosion of supply that happened early 2022. And you might've heard or read some stories about the Airbnb bust. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people were under the mistaken impression that uh, that meant that people didn't want to go to short-term rentals anymore, but that's that was not the case. So we saw uh, demand continue growing throughout this period and, and growing very, very quickly. So, you know, 20% year over year, 15% year over year, uh, even, you know, uh, what was it, January of 2022? Look at that. It's 
uh, 42% increase year over year for demand in, in, the, in that, that month. So, you know, big increases in demand were, were going on in 2022. Even by the end of 2022, we were still seeing those 15% increases in demand. But what we also were seeing was the effects of this big supply hitting. So, you know, 15% sounds really great until you compare it to the supply numbers of 20 to 25%. And then you start seeing your unit performance decline. So occupancies were, were declining. Uh, to some extent, that's okay. You know, occupancies are still a few points higher now than they were before the pandemic. So if we think about that, and, and I think they're going to remain there uh, at a little bit higher. I think that, um, uh, that, that there is a structural shift that has happened. Um, but that was that bust that people were talking about is that, well, you weren't seeing record high performance, once in a lifetime performance like you saw in 2021. Well, we probably won't, but that doesn't mean that people aren't interested. And it doesn't mean that the space isn't still pretty rapidly expanding and there's a lot of opportunity. One of the things that I'm excited about, we just got the, the full month May numbers in and they're, uh, the supply is finally starting to, to cool down. So in 2022, when May hit, you know, that's when it really started amping up May, June, July. People were putting their properties on the market for that summer season to capture as much of that revenue as possible. This May, on the other hand, the supply growth, it, it's, it's, still pretty, it's still pretty high at 15.3% year over year. But, you know, compare that to the 20s and 25s we're seeing, it's actually the lowest uh, supply growth that we've seen since the end of 21. Uh, so more than a year, you know, has gone by more than a year and a half, about a year and a half has gone by. We haven't seen year over year supply increases uh, at this low level. And demand is still powering forward. You know, it, it at the same time, it's uh, demand nights are up 12% year over year. So we're still seeing that occupancy go down a little bit. But I think that those higher mortgage payments, and of course, that big run up in prices that we saw at the same time, I've really cut into the ability of, of supply to just kind of explode like we saw at the beginning of 2022. And that's really great news for anybody that can get in the space or that is already in the space as far as unit performance goes. So, you know, that's in broad strokes what we've sort of been seeing in the in the U.S. So the increase in supply along this last couple of years compared to people purchasing intentionally to put this acquired home onto the market is an Airbnb short-term rental and supply. Um, are, are there any, is there any way to even measure that kind of a, of a scenario of people, new acquisitions of homes versus people, Hey, I already have this home. I'm going to change it from a long-term rental and turn it into a short-term rental. Or like, is there any way to differentiate between someone who has the home already versus someone who acquires it to add it to the supply? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I mean, it's really difficult to get, um, you know, incredible visibility into that. One of the things that we can look at is the the amount of listings that remain from year to year on the on the market as the same listing. Now that that number has increased over the last two years. So that that is to say more the market's stickier. Uh, and as transactions become more difficult uh, with interest rates the way they are. Um, that has, you know, two effects, right? If you want to go and invest, it's a little bit more difficult than it was a year ago. Uh, but also if you wanted to sell your home, you might not get the price, the highest price, uh, uh that, that you were, you were hoping for because, you know, the, the potential buyers can have to factor in those higher interest rates in your payment. 
So you might hold on to your home for those mortgage rates to, to go down, for the Fed to start maybe cutting rates at some point. Uh, what are you going to do with that house in the meantime? Right? You want to you don't want to just have it sitting empty. Uh, if you can generate some income off of it, you put you you put it or keep it on the short term uh, rental market. So it does kind of cut both ways. There is a very important metric in the industry that we do keep track of, and and uh, it, it's a, a KPI that is of special interest, and that's the uh, sort of the revenue potential, the gener the revenue that you can generate in a particular market for a, a particular type of home um, divided by that uh, that mortgage uh, payment. And when that number is over one, well, that's great. You know, you can cover your mortgage payment with the income that you're getting and still have some left over. Now, if it's less than one, uh, you're still getting equity building up in your home, which is nice, but you know, you're, you're also going to have to come up with some additional funds to, uh, to, to cover that payment. So it becomes less attractive to many people as an investment. So you mentioned rates uh, there shortly. Do you have any guesses or data uh, hinting of rates changing up or down in the near future? Do, do ah. you have any thoughts? On, not, not, I'm not, I don't want you to answer the question yet, but just do you have a yes or no, some thoughts on it? Oh, I've got, yeah, I'm an economist. Of course, I've got thoughts on it. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's save that for a little bit later because I want to dig into a few more things in terms of um, the short-term rental types. And so you had some uh, on the, the AirDNA uh, resources uh, tab in their website. They've got mm -hmm. a lot of good articles, blogs, uh, case studies, some press news and, and, and webinars. And one of them was breaking down kind of the different trends and hot areas for uh, cabin rentals versus beach rentals versus their, your more industrial uh, urban areas. Mm -hmm. And so those are kind of the three examples of, of ways that you can break down the different types of short-term rentals. But can you kind of dig into some of the different trends and, and things going on in those different markets? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's a variety of ways that we try to, to slice the data so that, you know, you can, you can find the most comparable property and one, and one is by location type. And there's, you know, six really broad location types that we uh, separate U S rentals in one of those is resorts that are on the beach. And you know we what we saw with with those is they performed you know very very strongly very very quickly after the after the pandemic so they were the first essentially to come back it was the same with hotels too right if you had some place to stay on the beach uh, you were you were golden for a solid year people were going to be at your place at, as much as possible uh, because you know you could socially distance and be outside it was it was great. so they they came back very very strongly and you know as as a result their growth might be a little bit less than than it had been in the past. Uh, so you know, I think this article was looking at you know current current performance and maybe where there's still some potential left because you know a lot of places have been increasing rates have been increasing um, their occupancies are operating at very high performance. So if you wanted to get into that market, you would be faced with you know that that premium being priced in. Um, so that that's something to be aware of. Uh, for for say beach resorts, another thing, mountain resorts. You know the cabins. Uh, we've seen enormous growth in places like like Gatlinburg and of course Breckenridge, uh, which is very close to the the Air DNA offices um, as well. A lot of uh, a lot of interest in ski in Breckenridge. Not as much in Gatlinburg, but it's still a real fun town right on the Smokies. Uh, Love to vacation there um, as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's another place that has done done or another location type that has done done very well. You know what we've seen post pandemic a very very big interest in leisure 
again, to, to caricature the market, we, we saw Airbnb really start up in very dense urban areas. You know, there, there was San Francisco, New York, you know, lots of cities. Barcelona is another one in Europe uh, where we saw a lot of uh, activity initially. But we've seen the biggest growth in interest since the pandemic in more leisure-oriented activities, especially those that are located away from very densely urban uh, densely populated urban areas. So seen a huge interest in uh, small town and rural areas, and that is continuing to, to increase. Um, of course, the resorts that I mentioned, the cabins in the mountains and lakes, and also in the beach resorts, those saw a lot of initial interest. Uh, and again, the growth uh, potential of these might be squeezed in some cases just because they have seen so much uh, interest and growth in the last last few years. But small towns, uh, mid-sized towns as well, those are still doing very, very well and are, are growing. There's a lot of interest in there. The urban are still trying to catch up. Some of these very densely populated urban, even suburban areas are still trying to catch up. In some cases, it's limited by, by regulations that have occurred in these areas. So small towns, rural areas, much less likely to have very strict short-term rental regulations. It's something if you're looking to invest in this space, you've really got to pay attention to. Regulations can cut two ways. You know, they, they can prevent you from operating in a market, or they can also, you know, if if you can adhere to all those regulations, they can they can to some extent insulate you from competition. So is you know, that is an important important factor to consider too. So backpedaling just just a second, in terms of you know, cabin or mountain areas, things like that. Um, you know, you're going to have some of your pricier areas, you know, maybe it's a Jackson hole or Breckenridge, um, do any kind of up and coming lesser well-known areas come to mind that are, you know, up and coming hot that could have some, some growth. Uh, you know, that, yeah. Anything that's not big bear, that, <laughs> that's, that one has seen just incredible, uh, just Maybe even I, I, I'm not going to go as far as they oversupply, but it's been it's been a really big supply supply growth um, area. Uh, ski is tough, you know. I think I think there's you know there's always interest in in some of the lake resorts. We we lump them together, you know, they're sort of mountain lake. Um, but if you ask me, ski is a little bit different because it is difficult to to build in some of those areas. It is difficult to grow supply in some cases. So that. That is something that you really got to pay attention to. But, you know, there's there's definitely interest in, in uh, vacations on the lake as well and, and um, uh, in, you know, wilderness sites even to some extent. Uh, but again, yeah, you really want to pick for me, you really want to pick the investment that is is right for, for you. And that that is going to include certainly the revenue potential, uh, but also that those other factors like the regulation, also the comfort that you've got with a particular market. Um, we had two, we had two pieces, two sort of, uh, that, that were launched like back to back. One was called the best places to invest. And the other one was the hottest markets, right? And, and, um, well, we had those to differentiate between the two, because if you look at our best places to invest, uh, piece, what it does is it really lays out more of a investment formula to look at. So again, looking at the cost to, to move into an area versus the potential revenue that you can get, the performance uh, of the short-term rentals in that market. So um, so what BPTI came out with, our best place to invest piece came out with, was some places that people uh, 
uh, scratched their head at a little bit. So I think Fairbanks, Alaska was the number one. Anybody's following along and they're on their computer typing in AirDNA, going to search for an article, which which article? Like I see one that's the hottest short-term rental cities. I see uh, ranked right. by um, you know the differentiation between cabin apartment and beach homes. Yeah, this is, one, I'm sorry. This, one? The, the best place to invest is titled Best Short-Term Rental Investment Markets in 2023. Do you, do you have a date on that on that article? Is it, is it in the blog section? Uh, this one came out in February. So the BPTI came out in February. We followed it up with the hottest markets. Okay. Um, and and again, the, the reason that we distinguish, I can get into the reason why we had to distinguish between the two, but the hottest short-term rental cities in the U.S. for 2023. That one came out May 17th. Uh, and that one was to contrast, to some extent, the the best place to invest in 2023, that one. Okay, so let's okay, so let's let's go back to the Fairbanks, Alaska top one. So this is yeah. from a February 13th article, Best Places to Invest in U.S. Vacation Rentals in 2023. Right. And I'm looking on this map, and it's, it's uh, interesting in that the map is all scattered with dots on the east side except for Alaska. So Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska is number one, Evansville, Indiana, number two, uh, Rockford, Illinois, Springfield, Illinois, uh, yeah. Burdett, New York. So what's the logic just in, you know, short on, on this type of uh, analysis. So this one, you know, we've got tons and tons of data, you know, just reams of it. Uh, and this one was a real number crunching exercise. Essentially we're just looking at how much does it cost to, to get into an area versus, you know, what's the performance of the short-term rentals? And we wanted to see, you know, the biggest difference between the two, you know, the biggest performance for the, for the least amount of money to get in there. And it came up with, uh, and it came up with this, this list. Um, and a lot of these, you know, there are, uh, there are a bunch in the Midwest, you know, where we've got some places where property values aren't, aren't really high. If you look in California, you know, you're not going to find a lot of places that are real cheap to get into. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, property values are, are, are really, really high up there. Um, but, but yeah, we've got a lot of places in the Midwest. Some, there's a, there's a location here in upstate New York, uh, some in Maine even. So, you know, these are places that, that have good performance with the existing SGR stock, but, you know, the property values are, are not sky high and that, that typifies, you know, the, the best place to invest paper. But when a lot of people got this in February, and that's why we came out with a new paper, the hottest markets, they sort of scratched their heads because, you know, Fairbanks, Alaska, the number on, on paper, it looks great. But, you know, how are you going to property manage your, your Fairbanks, Alaska, if you live like I do in Atlanta, right? That's a very, uh, that's a tough plane ride. It's a tough commute. And a lot of these are in out of the way places. And that's, that's you know, where you see property values that are, are low compared to the performance of places. And of course, I'd love to visit Fairbanks, Alaska. I bet it's beautiful, you know, and I'd probably pay a lot for a short-term rental there, but it would be difficult to, to get out there and clean it regularly if I owned a place out there. So that's what we came out with the hottest markets in May, which is a different methodology. So this would be the, the best place to invest. That's kind of a, a process by which you can identify places that, that you you can invest in, right? That, that you can narrow in of the places that you are able to invest in, which is the best. Uh, the hottest markets is, is where actually have people been investing this last year. And so we've seen enormous uh, expansion of short-term rental supply in some of these places. 
primarily in uh, southern Sunbelt cities. Uh, Phoenix is number one. We've got several in Texas um, as well. Uh, again, where, you know, uh, there's been a lot of interest in these um, areas post-pandemic as well. The Sun Belt was uh, there's you know, a lot of of people say moving out of really densely urban areas and and trying to get out to where things are a little bit less dense during the pandemic, and when remote work happened, also this had a profound change on people as I can work from anywhere. I'm going to move out of where it's really expensive to live and be able to to live much more cheaply, and and yet still have the similar income. So. With those sort of factors going in, we, we did see a lot of interest in in some of these these cities. To some extent, you know, I wouldn't, you know, Phoenix, Scottsdale, it would be tough for me to to personally want to invest in, in, in there just because of the incredible supply that they've got. It's going to be really hard to compete uh, out there. Um, in fact, I did. I looked at the Super Bowl this year, which was uh, in which was in Phoenix. Um it, it hosted and you know that has been a perennial um demand event for hospitality so I've, I've been looking at super bowls for for a long time i'm not a professional football fan you know i i follow the college uh college leagues because i'm a graduate of uga go dogs but but i always had to follow the super bowl because that that's always a big event in hospitality you know people will pay a lot of money to stay at a city f- during that that whole week of the Super Bowl. And in Phoenix, Scottsdale, what we saw in the short-term rental market was astonishing, something I, I don't think I've ever seen before, but the occupancy actually year over year was lower during the Super Bowl than it was the, the year prior, just because of the huge supply increase, like 60% supply increase. So even the Super Bowl couldn't increase demand enough to overcome the thousands and thousands of additional listings that had appeared over over the last year. So these are certainly hot markets, not necessarily the best ones to invest in right now. Gotcha. Okay. So on this list, you got Phoenix, then Dallas, then Houston, then St. Louis, then San Antonio. So that's the top five here. And any other one of these you, you want to maybe just give a little extra feedback on or backdrop on in terms of why or how or what? Well, yeah, all of these cities are are on here for that sort of similar reason is that a, a lot of people, there is a lot of interest um, in there, uh, in, in these markets. And we, you know, there's two of them from Florida. Also, you know, we, we did see a lot of interest in just hospitality in, in Tampa and in St. Pete, you know, that area um, as well. It's, it does have, you know, it's got nice beaches on St. Pete. Uh, you're, you're pretty, pretty close to, uh, to, to Disney, uh, Disney world. And you can go to Bush gardens as well if you're in Tampa, which is a, a great theme park. So, you know, a, a lot of demand generation happening around there, but a lot of supply as well. So Orlando, which is sort of close by is, uh, the biggest short-term rental market, also the biggest hotel market in the, the U S in terms of the supply. So, you know, it's certainly, those are certainly again, hot markets, they got demand generators. There's a lot of reason for people to want to go to those markets. But uh, the, on the other hand, there are a lot of people have gone to those markets. So you've got these articles and data to kind of um, digest and absorb and then, you know, use your own typically calculations or own typical you know, analysis. Um, you know, I'm an investor. 
I'm looking at stuff for myself and also for clients on the mortgage side. And, you know, I, I use the rentalizer very mm. often to project out a, you know, an address, you know, when we look at, when, when I look at these trends and looking at these things, you know, I'm taking the projected rental income. And then what I do is I just take 60% of that. I'm just going to assume 40% of expenses just as a round number. And then I'm backing into, okay, what if the purchase price is 300,000 or 600,000, whatever it is, if I assume 20 or 25% down, assuming a rate, assuming an interest rate, you know, figure out what the payment's going to be. And kind of that same barometer you were saying before of the greater or lower than one. What is you, what was that acronym you said? What was the, uh, uh, we call it the uh, we call it the yield. The yield. Okay. So if you if you're if you're net, and I'm looking at the net income. If the net income is greater than the mortgage payment, right? You know that sixty percent. Then okay, I'm, I'm thinking oh, that 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 could be a a strong contender to to look deeper into. When you are talking about the data, and then there's so much data, how to analyze it, how to make sense of what the numbers mean, from your perspective, from the econ- economist side. Any other insights on some of the tools or, or, or data that's out there that, that that is more important than others? Yeah, no, that that rentalizer is is a is a a great tool. You know, I love that one. It's just great for for prospecting, and I think we're coming out with some enhancements this fall too to to that to make it a little bit easier for people to to figure out where they can invest. So you know, stay tuned for that. But you know, I would say that generally speaking, what you want to do in your mind is is try to think of places that you would be you would be willing to invest. That you you know the market, that you're comfortable, that you can access these properties, that you can look after them. So for me, you know, Fairbanks, Alaska is pretty much off the table. I live in the Atlanta area though, and I live in the western suburbs, so that kind of narrows it down. We've got a major um, you know, major urban, major urban center here. I could, I could drive there and, and maybe look after some properties. So, you know, that's where I should start putting in my focus. And then from there, you know, using the rentalizer and also looking at where the, what the house prices are and, and what those potential mortgage payments might be, I might be able to find really fine tune where I think I'm going to be able to get my, the best bang for my buck. Uh, the expenses the expenses are difficult for for short term rentals to to get great data on. A lot of people do the cleaning and maintenance themselves. Um, you should you should definitely figure that labor into into your investment equation because uh, your time is very valuable as well. But yeah, you also want to, to try to estimate expenses. How much it's going to cost to to hire a cleaning service, or how much that would be. Uh, how much is it going to cost to continue to to refurnish your apartments? Because people are going to wear those towels out, like you like you wouldn't believe, you know. And people like fresh towels as well, so right. you know, go ahead and buy buy them in bulk. You you won't regret it. But yeah, trying to to, to figure out some of those expenses, um, and then again finding the best bang for your buck. I think you're going to be able to get a pretty good picture about whether or not these investments are possible, and uh, you know what they're going to look like. I think visibility into you know, people that are already into the space and are, are are actually renting is is great too. Having those comparables close by, see, you know, what what is, you know, what is realistic. Kind of going in a different direction. You know, you and I were talking about this, I think, previously that Airbnb uh, was putting some extra emphasis on just solo rooms that they're advertising and, and pushing yes. more out there. Why why are they doing that? Yeah, now that yeah, so there's summer release. They really started talking about solo rooms. In the last few years, we've seen the biggest increase in growth in, in larger homes. So, you know, with, with with multiple bedrooms, 
Uh, the, the private room is kind of, you know, it, it's kind of plotted along and hasn't seen sort of stellar growth. It's fallen, I think, as a proportion of the total rental share. So yeah, it does sort of raise the question, why did Airbnb emphasize this so much? Well, uh, I think one of the things that, that we're looking at is is most economists are expecting a, a slowdown uh, at the end of the year, uh, economic slowdown. And we've had pretty strong jobs numbers, but with those, those increasing interest rates trying to tackle inflation, uh, with that inflation weighing on people's budgets already, uh, I think what they're focusing on is, is value. So we might see uh, private rooms as being a way to very quickly expand you know, supply that has a high value because those rooms generally are, are less expensive than the entire homes. So there's a couple of things that, that go along with that. So one, you can also expand the supply more quickly if you can have private rooms within existing homes because you you know you don't need transactions. And as, as I said, transactions in the housing market right now, well, you know, you're in the mortgage business. Mm -hmm. um, not they're not you know white hot right now. Mm -hmm. um, so you can expand the supply perhaps more quickly with people existing uh, carving out a room in their existing home and putting that on the market. So from a supply side, there's that interest. But from a demand side as well. And we've got this really this really uh, strong jobs market. So people have got jobs. But on the other hand, we've got inflation that's pinching their budgets. They need to go on a vacation, but they can't spend as much on a vacation. Maybe this is one way to to save some some money. So some more options. Having that person that wants to wants to be able to yeah. get out but have some more effective Cheaper options, essentially. Yeah, and, and it, it might end up too being just something that draws you into the website. You know, they said, "Wow, you know, I could stay for sixty-five dollars a night in this private room. That's incredible." And then you're looking and said, "You know what? But also, I could have a whole house to myself for another forty or fifty bucks a mm -hmm. night, and that's worth it too." So I think you know, just from from a, an attraction standpoint, because people are going to be looking towards you know budget budget conscious options. Uh, is a way to, to attract people into the space that might not have considered it otherwise, um, just, you know, as an alternative to traditional traditional hotel lodging. So now the all-important question that I know that I want to hear your opinion on in terms of rates, and I'm sure other people out there are interested too, uh, but you mentioned that some economists, uh, you know, expecting the economy to slow down, inflation is still there, pinching into budgets, as, as you mentioned. Jobs are still strong. What's going to happen with uh, as you go through the the rest of this year? So yeah, we like to uh, we so we partner with uh, Oxford Economics and and look at their forecasts. You know, very frequently they've got kind of a tourism focus, and you know, we've got long standing relationships with a lot of the the folks over there. Um, I just finished up with the Outlook report. We're hoping to publish it next uh, week, and that sort of synthesizes our economic outlook with what we expect performance in the short-term rental industry to, to look like over the past year. We had done another one of these outlooks at the beginning of the year and a big, uh, a big miss, something that we didn't get right was, was the economics and, and, you know, Oxford economics didn't get it right. Most people didn't get it right. They were expecting a downturn and they're expecting it to hit, uh, it hit jobs pretty hard. So, uh, we didn't see that, right? Job growth has continued. Uh, in fact, the gap between where we expected the total employment to be and where it actually is amounts to about 4 million jobs, which is 
you know, incredible. Uh, as an economist, I'm very impressed. You know, this is the lowest unemployment rate we've had in, in decades and decades. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, can you explain that number again? So 4 million jobs, That what is that number again? Yeah, that's total U.S. employment. So just the total number of jobs. Uh, Oxford that, are, was that, are, that are available to hire or that's jo- jobs added? No, or People that are working, people, you know, that, that are filling these occupations, that are pulling in paychecks and therefore that need vacations. I mean, you know, so okay. 4 million, that's, that's a huge number, right? So total employment, uh, you know, about 154 million people, 155 million people or jobs, I should say, because you can work multiple jobs. And that that is again is about four million difference from from what they're what they're expecting at the beginning of the year. So huge, okay. huge okay. of of additional jobs. So they're expecting a retraction, expecting an economic slowdown. Uh, it didn't it didn't materialize as expected. Why? There's all this doom and gloom that I see on the media about housing prices going down. This happening. This happening. That happening. Yeah, it's a great why, why is it why is that different? Why is that not happening? It it you know it is a great question. I think there's a lot of explanations, not none of them necessarily satisfactory, but we have seen more employment. Maybe one of the reasons for this is you know there are sort of more more service sector jobs and there's still a long way to go in that recovery. So as a service oriented economy, when construction and manufacturing slow down, we don't lose as many employed employed positions as we as we once did so that might be one thing another thing is that inflation has been increasing faster than wages so in some previous inflationary periods you know wages have gone up with inflation or even maybe have been ahead of inflation a little bit this is the cause of the the wage inflation spiral that they were really dreading Uh, we haven't actually seen that materialize so to some extent maybe it's not as expensive to hire and to, to retain employees as, as it may have been in some past inflationary periods compared to what you can sell your, your output for. So, you know, some of the, all these sorts of things, they might be contributing here and there to, to higher employment. And it looks like that even though Oxford is now expecting the downturn to happen in the second half of this year, that even still, we are going to 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 still see stronger employment than they had predicted six months ago for the foreseeable for the foreseeable future. So that that has been a characteristic of this economic business cycle that is to some extent unfamiliar. You know, we've never seen a recession occur with when when everybody has a job. Unfamiliar is probably. The best way to put it, we're in we're in uncharted territory, right? I mean, maybe not, but like the pumping of money in the into the economy from, you know, the the pandemic, you know, rates going to all time lows, and then then the rapid increase. We saw some of these things happen in different cycles. Eighty one, for example, you know, the rapid increase in rates. Yeah, but it wasn't this rapid. So this yeah. is, I believe, the most rapid increase that we've ever seen. And some of that, you know, maybe the world just operates more quickly nowadays with with all the telecommunications that we've you know, improvements that we've seen. The internet was invented and all that sort of stuff. People can bank online and, and can, you know, transactions just happen that much more quickly. So maybe that's why we had to to raise those rates uh, uh, quickly. But in any case, yeah, like it's like you said, we don't have a great historical precedent to, to compare this to. But one thing I do know 
is that if you do have a job, you need to take a vacation every once in a while. Uh, so that's that's a constant. So as a result, you know, I think we're, we had to revise our demand uh, quite a bit upwards. So from a, a CPI standpoint, you know, CPI has been been falling each month from a, a rolling 12 month average from, a, you know, we I think last July it was like 9.2 or three. And then this most recent reading from April, April's data would put it just under 5%, depending on yeah, which metric look at. You know, so it's continuing to come down. What do you expect or what does Oxford say about that in relation to their projection for some type of re- of uh, down, downturn? How does that all fit together in terms of timing? Yeah, we, we're going to see some inflation numbers coming out pretty soon. The markets are betting, as you said, on continuing uh, reduction in inflation rates, so slowing of inflation. There's been a lot of talk about it's a narrow path to avoid uh, recession, but also to tame inflation, looking for that that soft landing, I guess. That's the, uh, the cliche that's been thrown around a lot. So, you know, the Fed is going to be, historically, the Fed has not been good at soft landings. Historically, the Fed uh, tightens too much, and we do have recessions. You know, whether it's different this time around because of our, our incredible momentum in the, in the labor force and in, in our employment, um, we, we might be able to achieve that this time. I'm expecting because just just because everything is just turning out better than we thought it was. I'm expecting the, the Fed to raise rates maybe one more time. Some people say, no, they're going to start. They're, they're going to keep them as they are. There's going to be a pause. And I think that's that's more of the mainstream uh, view is that there's going to be a significant pause. And we're going to, to take stock, you know, another six months from now, whether or not we want to lower or raise rates or, or some 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 time frame like that. But in any case, we're we're either close to the top of the rates uh, as far as the Fed goes, you know, or, or, you know, right before the top of the rates. So they should at least not go up a whole lot more than they are. Mortgage rates have been falling a little bit here and there, I think, in anticipation of this pause and maybe even reductions that the Fed is going to do. So, you know, you might start to see that actually translate into the real economy closer to the to the end of the year, which would run contrary to the idea that we're going to to be having a, a downturn. That's going to be, you know, something that could could in fact increase growth. Uh, so I think a lot of questions remain. So March's monthly CPI was around 0.1, April higher at 0.4 range. Given the data you are seeing, or what would you guess May's numbers to be higher or lower than April of a of a point four? Oh God! Well, we're, yeah, we're hoping that the the year over year growth drops below five. I mean that that is very important. If it doesn't, then you know, yeah, we're going to see some more some more rate increases. So that's going to be a, a number that people are paying very very close attention to. You know, because we want to. Right now, the, the inflation rate has been declining, and it's been doing so in a roughly symmetrical way to its increase. So, you know, we want to see that continue, and any deviation from that, either on the downside or the upside, could influence Fed decisions. So, I'm going to be paying attention. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to come in and say four, four point five, or you know, four point six, or something like that. That would be nice. Uh, but if it's five one, then yeah, we're going to see some more. We're going to see some more action from the Fed. Would be my, would be my bet. Okay. And then that that data gets released next week, maybe. Or when does that data get released? I forget. Oh, let me check the um, my uh, 
my colleague Jamie Lane, he 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 likes to go to the uh, the BLS website and click refresh over and over and over again until the <laughs> new data gets there. But my professors always told me you gotta you gotta distance yourself from the single data point. You know, you just check on it every once in a while. So I'm looking at the release schedule, Tuesday the thirteenth. So yeah, early okay, next- okay, yeah, because I know you you and I were talking about this before too. That like whether they calculate the twelve month rolling index and you know. One thing that I've said over and over that is just really interesting is that, you know, the, the run up last year of CPI from April, I think it was like around 0.5 May was a one point, uh, just, just under 1% for the individual month. And then June was 1.2 for that Mm. individual month. And then July just fell off a cliff. It was zero 1.2 to zero all of a sudden. And like, I felt that in my industry in terms of mortgages, because we had a good closing month in June. But the applications, like the new business that was coming in the door was like fell off a cliff that month as rates went from the mid fives to the mid sixes within a few weeks. And then so July's data to show a zero, like it doesn't surprise me because I, I felt it. But like to see that data, that massive drop off was just, was just very interesting, especially looking in hindsight. And then when May and June fall off that 12 month rolling average, that's going to help that CPI number come down even further as we get further into the summer is kind of what I'm seeing. Is that what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And, you know, I think a big part of that is that when we look at the components that made up inflation, the housing made up a very significant portion of it this time around. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, inflation sort of lumps everything together into one number, but, you know, not everything changed prices in the same way. And housing, I think, went up, you know, significantly more than the inflation rate. So it made up a large portion of that, of that inflation. And so, you know, once you put the the crimp on on uh, housing via the interest rates, then the, the prices of housing started falling a bit and that, that immediately reversed course as far as inflation goes because it made up such a significant portion. Gotcha. So end of the year, which, well, let's just say this. What's your prediction for seeing a sub three close to two CPI? Not going to hold you to it, but your, what's, your, um, what's your best range of guess? Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking that we we still we stay above three for the rest of the year. Okay. Uh, and then you know we get back to more like two and a half. There have been talks too about maybe the Fed needs to increase its target from two to two and a half in this this, this new world because the you know the two percent target is to some extent you know an artificial construction and and yet it determines you know so much actual stuff that happens in the real economy. You know, but but yeah, I I still see that there's a tremendous amount of strength in the economy. So, you know, a downturn such as it is, it's probably not going to feel the same as as it has. And something else to think about, too, is when we think about recession and downturns, I'm thinking about, well, 2008, 2009, which was like the greatest recession since the Great Depression in 1932. And and then there's the COVID, which uh, the entire world shut down for, for six months. And so now when we're talking about a downturn, it's not nearly on that scale. And plus, you're also probably going to have a job this time around because the, the way the labor market looks. You've got a lot of old folks retiring as well, getting out of the labor force, and they're going to have, they're switching from savers to spenders. So there's going to be some demand that's going to come out from that as well. And it may not even feel like a downturn the way that we've been conditioned to expect. All right, now we're uh, up against time here. La- last couple of things. 
is there a data metric? You know, we've been talking about CPI and the economy in general. Is there a data metric that you like to look at that gives you hints or insights of things to come that may not always be talked about? Absolutely. Yeah. Something new in this outlook report is we've really started to look at short-term rental pacing. So that is one look at at least one category of expenditure that's going to happen in the future. And what we're seeing is that vacations this year are going to be really, really strong. So, you know, whether or not there's a downturn, we're going to see some significant growth in leisure and hospitality. You know, that's been, that's been a segment that has been trying to recover since the pandemic. It, you know, we're, we're, we're still getting there in some areas. We've, we've achieved uh, and surpassed pre-pandemic levels in other areas. But yeah, that's one sort of way that we can look at, at the future is to look at what's already on the books. So this summer, we're pacing 10% ahead of where we were this time last year. You know, we're expecting for the entire year of 2023 to be up to 10.4% as far as demand goes. So that's going to be one of our, our headline numbers that's coming out in the outlook. Um, and, you know, that's that's a positive story. Um, because that's, we, that's, we, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah we, we had record uh, record demand for short-term rentals last year. We're going to, we're going to be beating that again this year. Is there going to be a little bit more interest on, you know, finding the best deal? Maybe, you know, our, our ADR prediction is is going to be around 2.1%, which again is probably below what I said inflation was going to be, but it's still positive. It's a little bit less than, it's quite a bit less than last year, which in 2022, we saw 5.7% rate increases. Um, we're expecting 2.1. And some of that might be the mix as well. I should point that out. This ADR figure, it's not corrected for mix. We're looking into ways to do that. But if we have a lot more private rooms being rented, for example, that will drag our average down. So unit performance might might be better than that. But yeah, I think it's a really positive sign. It's, you know, I think it gives a picture of people's confidence in the labor market for the future. Not only do they have a job now, they're expecting to have it this summer when they're taking that vacation. Yeah. Kind of going back to the idea of a, of a soft landing and you know, what does that even mean? And it'll be very inter- interesting to see as we kind of progress through the rest of this year and look at the expenditure, GDP, employment rates, market, stock market, all, all these things. And, and obviously hindsight's always 2020, but you know, to, to me, there seems like a, a shot at a quote unquote soft landing. If certain things continue to line up here, They've got a shot, which is just remarkable, given just dramatic swings of of, of markets in the last couple of years. I, yeah, absolutely. And you know, as an economist, people always ask, like, are, are we in a recession, or you know, are we headed for a recession? And the, the old joke is, the economist, you always say, well, do you have a job? And if the answer is yes, then no, we're doing fine. If the answer is no, then we're definitely in a recession. And I think the answer to that question has been for most of this year, and and will continue to be for most people that yes, we do have a job and that is going to make this risk, you know, if there is a downturn, it will look quite a bit different, feel a lot different uh, than we have in the past. And maybe you're right. There is a chance that we could see an upside uh, to this or uh, demand continues expanding. Um, investment begins to to pick up and, and we avoid it. Even the small downturn that we're expecting. Yep. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for, for making time for us and, and the audience here to take a little bit deeper on the short-term rental market, the tools that ARDNA has, and the broader uh, economy in, in general. And looking forward to catching back up down the road. And we'll be watching some of these metrics as we progress through the year. And 
Bram, can't thank you enough. Well, thanks so much for having me, Joel. It's been a, a real fun time. All right. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast. If you're ready to jumpstart your financial journey and take it to the next level, you may want to join our 30-day habit challenge, which you can find on our website, strivefor25.com, strive, F-O-R, the number 25.com. You can also follow us on YouTube and Instagram by searching strive for the number 25. And if you have any questions and want to reach out to us, you can also connect with us on our website. Thank you so much.